Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I have a fantastic guest and friend with me today on the show, Helena Varelin. She is a media industry expert. She has spent her almost her entire career in almost every single corner of the media industry. She started doing international marketing for Shakira, if you can believe it. She was then leading marketing at WWE. She played a major role in marketing and business development with Audible, now owned, of course, by Amazon. And now she's with Sesame Workshop. So this is somebody who's seen it all from professional sports, if you want to call WWE that, to children's <laughs> entertainment, to music, to the latest cutting edge media companies, subscription businesses, almost every business model of media covered by there. So welcome, Helena. Oh, and I should add, she also speaks five languages to my to my one. So let me put it this way. Between us, we speak six languages. So I think that makes us both sound fairly impressive, actually. I think it is. I think we're perfect. So we can start a little like six language company right there. Exactly. Exactly. So welcome. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And is there anything else you'd want to add to my introduction that you'd want folks to know about before we dive in? Well, thank you, Howard, for having me. I really appreciate it. I know we're going to talk about my entrepreneurial part of my my new lease on my career um, later on, but I'm yes. very excited to be here. Thank you for reminding me. We will have a big <laughs> reveal at the end. So you you don't want to miss the very end of the podcast because Helena will be announcing something very exciting that she's been working on, something breakthrough. And no fast forwarding. You have to listen to the whole podcast. Absolutely. And it should be interesting, I hope. We're not going to bore you. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and people may be wondering where you're from originally since you don't sound like you're from the Bronx. Yeah. No, I'm originally from Belgium, born and bred, went to college there, and then started my career in London. So I have this hybrid English-American because I've also been here now for 22 years. So I'm not sure what my accent is anymore, but it's, it's a bit of everything. Yeah. Well, I grew <laughs> up in Chicago and then moved to New York with a couple of years in L.A. People years ago used to, used to identify a Chicago accent for me, but I don't hear not people anymore. say that anymore. So I, I guess maybe it's, it's all blurred together. I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, fantastic. Well, well, let's dive in. The media industry has gone through so many changes, and I feel like you have paced every, almost every part of it. I think we should kind of go back to the beginning, and I'd love just your thoughts on maybe starting with your WWE experience. Um, you were there during a time of great transformation. For anyone who's not uh, a viewer of WWE's product, if you would just remind everyone what their product is all about, and then what's some of the transformation that you helped lead and participate in while you were there. Yeah, so obviously WWE has been around for probably about 25, 30 years and was very focused on obviously its professional wrestling. Its pay-per-view was kind of the big revenue driver. They had terrestrial broadcasts. Um, and I think they're on Fox right now. They were on ABC. They've been, they've run the gamut of kind of uh, US broadcasters, um, but their real kind of lion's share of revenue would come from um, their big pay-per-views. And obviously, when that business started to go downhill, you know, what do you do as a company, right, as a media company? And I think it's always been so fascinating um, that my time at WWE coincided with that whole idea of we should become a streaming platform, you know, which is fascinating in itself, but I think more fascinating when we're talking about one subject, and it's wrestling. 
right? There is nothing else. There's no additional, you know, content. It's one core audience group. It's one piece of kind of focused content. Um, and they were very bold to say, let's do it. Let's do a 24-7 network. We charge $9.99 a month for it. And they were working together with the platform that MLB was holding at that point for doing a lot of their kind of streaming. And it, two years later, they launched it, which, you know, a lot of the companies, I think media broadcaster at that point said, it's never going to work. I mean, how are you going to get people to pay that kind of money just to see wrestling? Well, lo and behold, they were wrong. <laughs> So a huge success. And I, I'm not sure what the numbers are right now. I think it's probably 1.6 million, but please don't quote me. Anyone who works for WWE, it's been a while. But, you know, we reached a 1 million goal fairly quickly. And my role within that was to kind of think, how could we expand that internationally and really grow the streaming business and even the concept of streaming, right? Because it's all fine and well to have a streaming business, but you need to get people to understand why this is a value to them instead of just having a Netflix or something else. So definitely transformational for WWE and without a doubt has made them a, an even more important player in the kind of media landscape. Very bold, very, um, very aggressive and very kind of well executed, I have to say. And really represents one of the big transitions we've seen across media, which is the opportunity to go direct to consumer. I mean, if you think about the pay-per-view model they were operating under before, of course, they had to go through MSOs, which meant that expanding internationally was much more complicated, you know, needing to make deals with cable companies in every company in Europe versus the internationalization possibility of just saying, hey, let's just add some more Akamai servers and now we can stream, you know, anywhere in the world. Not to mention the, the economic differences. I mean, you know, one of the things that we always talk about is the three key components of successful digital brands. One of them is just value, giving you mm -hmm. more. And when I think about, I mean, I forget what did a what did a pay per view? Didn't it cost like twenty five bucks for a pay per view? No, I think it was more. It's like forty nine ninety nine, something like that. Yeah, they were super wow. expensive. Yes. Now all of a sudden you can go direct to the customer and charge them ten dollars a month. So, in, in you know, when you look at just the pure value proposition. I mean, of course, if you like wrestling, if you don't yes. like wrestling, yes. it's worth nothing to you. But if you're a consumer, the cost is so much lower. And I'm assuming that WWE actually winds up making more because they can generate such a larger audience at a lower price point and they get to keep nearly all the money other than their streaming costs. Absolutely. And I, I think there's a little distinction in that, obviously, at that time, because we're talking about, what, seven, eight years ago, something like that internationally streaming wasn't necessarily as advanced, right? I think there was still a very much a focus on pay-per-view and, and we had a lot of great broadcast partners. So at one point we had both, right? We launched in about five territories initially, just because we could manage that a bit better. And you know, because it does need attention, right? It's not just about the launch, it's about the retention. As we all know, subscription models, it's all about figuring out what your retention model is. So Taking on too much in one time and not being able to have a follow-up plan wasn't a smart move on our behalf. But we did still rely from a revenue perspective initially on some of these pay-per-view partners internationally. Um, since the landscape was a little different and it's, it's still in certain markets, you know, streaming is becoming more and more prevalent. But there are still places where we kind of try and find the nice middle mode of how do we promote our, pay, you know, our, our streaming servers as well as our pay-per-view so making sure that we still keep the customer and its value at the base, that was one of the kind of hard things we had to look at as we were going out internationally. But to your point, within the US, you know, the value proposition was huge. But we had to, interestingly enough, sell that concept, though, because it's not 
an obvious concept to your point, right? Because people come to WWE, they are used to watching their linear free show every Monday or every Thursday, whichever one they were looking, whichever one they were watching at that point. And then they would come once every quarter to a big pay-per-view event, right? So there is this kind of habit of doing that. And although you would think, well, you're paying much more, why would you not choose to have the 999? We really had to change people's behavior and, and have them make them understand that the value they got by spending that money was tenfold out of it at the end of the year, right? If you just look even doing two pay-per-views. So we had to constantly reinvent the platform with new content, new things to that all obviously in the, in the wrestling world, but there was definitely this whole kind of, we need to be smarter about our content in order for people to understand that this is something that they should come back to year after year. And then, as you know, lifetime value is what makes it successful, right? It's not just the one-off or the trial. It's all about how long can we keep them into the platform so they become loyal and, you know, it comes back tenfolds in revenue. Yeah, well, and WWE was clearly one of the pioneers in this space, along with others. And you mentioned MLB and, and even Big Brother, I remember being mm-hmm. one of the yes. early pioneers, right, at a yes. subscription. Today, it seems, and I'd be curious about your perspective on this, but it seems like we've almost shifted to a world in which you had to convince people that this general idea would make sense. Pay me as an individual content producer a subscription of 10 bucks a month for access to a library of content at the time seemed like an unusual model. And today it's become, I think, to a large degree, the norm. And now, of course, we hear about so much cord cutting is that the old model where you just pay a cable company some $89 or whatever a month and you get this huge bucket of stuff, 80% of which you might not even care about, you know, the knitting channel and whatnot, you know. But uh, and now everybody seems to be buying content more a la carte, choosing their Hulu, their Netflix, their HBO subscriptions, all those kinds of things. Do you feel today like now all of a sudden the world has come to what you were trying to innovate around 10 years ago? Oh, 100%. But that's always the case, right? And I think. I think what I thought was most transformational is because to your point, people want to have a slew of content. They want to be able to have the choice. They want to be able to go to the knitting channel on their Netflix. I'm just, you know, give an example, but that is really what they're you're looking for. A lot of people in their kind of streaming partners to have that diversity that they have when they were flicking through their channels. But I think the boldness of the WWE is what, again, that it was just wrestling. And I think, you know, even so I'm talking about innovation and and kind of taking bold steps, but the fact that we could find an audience for that, that was, you just knew what it was going to be 10 years later, right? That this was just the way of the future. And MLB, to your point, was ahead of the game. I mean, we used their platform initially because we didn't have the kind of ability at that point to really build from scratch. We wanted to, you know, you know, have to test and learn. So interestingly enough, they were our partner. We had our content live on their platform because they were already so much ahead of time um, that they were able to build this, which is quite fascinating if you really think about it, that actually two sports specifically were at the forefront of all of this and very kind of bold about it. Absolutely. Very visionary for MLB. It's almost an Amazon type move, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Well, we have this capability. Let's turn around and turn that into its own business. And now MLB, I know it varies. Contracts come and go, but they've been involved with a number of different professional sports leagues, or in some cases, just individual clubs, depending on the sport and how how media rights are managed. So they've got a whole huge business now, totally independent of baseball. And um, not that many companies in their space have taken those kinds of moves. So real props to them. Can't get enough of winning digital customers? You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. So you then moved to Audible, you know, 
from my perception, you know, from the low brow to the high brow. <laughs> were you were you more comfortable in that environment? <laughs> I, yeah, probably I was. Yeah, it was interesting. Just on a side note with WWE, I. I remember, you know, first of all, and I was very honest in my interview with them saying, listen, I don't know wrestling. I didn't grow up with it. It's not something. But why I actually am interested in talking to you is because what you're doing with the brand and how innovative you are and how smart you are about what you're doing. The subject itself for me, when I'm thinking is specifically in my marketing kind of, you know, bucket, I don't really care what it is. You know, I'm thinking about the consumer, the customer. How can I, you know, what is the best way for me to solve their problem and market it to them? And I think about the channels and the opportunities and the innovation. That was it with WWE. I mean, my, my mom, when I told her, I said, oh, by the way, <laughs> you know, I'm working for WWE. She's from Belgium. She's kind of very traditional. And um, she really didn't understand it. And then I took her to a show in Antwerp, which is, I don't know if anyone who's listening knows, but a WWE show is extravagant. It's loud. It's people are so, I mean, the fans are so intense and so excited to be there. So we got tickets, I think the third row of the ring and my mom all dressed up because that's what she did, right? I was in the music industry, so she would go to concerts. She would always make sure she looked like perfectly dressed up. She stood out like a sore <laughs> because she was all beautifully dressed up and all these fans with their t-shirt and sweating. And, and she truly, her mouth was like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very interesting kind of moment, but, um, but I had a wonderful now, time. Now I, I've heard that her secret guilty pleasure is now going to WrestleMania. Is that <laughs> of right? Of course. That's exactly <laughs> it. I get her front row seats. She gets all the moves. <laughs> Right. Well, this is what uh, this business gives us the opportunity to do, right? To expand our horizons, Absolutely. To learn new things. So, yep. so then you went to Audible, which is interesting because if we think about media business model, of course, in some ways similar to a WWE in terms of a subscription model, but in some ways quite different because instead of a all you can eat subscription model, you now have this whole kind of sometimes a little bit complicated seeming kind of credit model. I'd love to hear a little bit about that transition and what you were mm -hmm. what you were brought into Audible to do and, and what you learned there. So it was a little different. So I've always been an international marketer um, in all of my roles um, to really kind of think globally about marketing some of the properties, the products that we had, uh, the brand. And in this case, it was um, it was much more of a, a business development role, right? So Audible at that point, 20 years, where they've always been a, a model where it's, you know, a credit, right? So you buy per month, you get one credit, and then you get some additional content. So it's always been a very strong focused business model that they haven't deviated from. So that's what they were working on. So um, in the first kind of year and a half, it was very much about thinking, how could we expand our subscription? So I was very much focused on the acquisition portion for the first Customer large Customer acquisition, you mean, or content? Customer acquisition. acquisition, yes, customer acquisition. But from a point of view of working with partners, so right? So we really were fine-tuning our paid media and our performance marketing efforts. So we, we really had amazing people that came from Verizon that, that knew that kind of model inside out. So we changed a lot of that to really try and be much smarter about the acquisition portion. We had a, a department that was purely focused on customer uh, lifetime value or making sure that retention was in there. So those were two different entities. And then they asked me to become kind of a third entity within that team to globally think about how could we bring our brand outside of the traditional marketing channels and find partners to help us generate more customers. 
So basically trying to fish in a, in a different pool, because let's face it, Audible has got an amazing amount of data and an amazing pool to go into because of the Amazon connection, right? So once Amazon, which was 10 years into Audible's existence, Amazon bought the company, it's still very much run by the founder. He was a CEO when I, I was still at the company. Now there's a new CEO, but he's still very involved into the company. So Amazon was very much, and as I think we all know, their motto is, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And Audible was a very successful entity that was bringing a lot of revenue and that was growing. And what they gave Audible was this amazing platform to market and to promote. They had a database that you could only dream of as a company to go and fish in, as we say. So there was a lot there. So my role was to like, how, where else can I find customer, which is hard when you already have this kind of big pool to go into. So um, that was kind of the first year and a half where I really thought through partnership with the likes like Exxon and Planet Fitness and, you know, Lufthansa in Germany and, and um, you know, Alaska Airlines. So kind of trying to figure out how can we get our content in front of more people so we get a certain loyalty and an understanding of why they should become uh, members. Uh, we did a deal with ARP as well, where, you know, we offered um, a better a better kind of subscription deal than what they would normally get. So it was all about trying to get um, customers from different angles. And then fast forward, the last kind of year there was about the transformation of Audible. So we were kind of all put into these tiger teams. And I was head of one that kind of thought through content acquisition and how could we be smarter about that so we could offer more to our customers. So I think as we probably know, anyone who's an Audible uh, member, there is a, a change in the business model. They've kind of still have, you know, the a la carte proposition, but now there is a slew of additional content that you get when you become a monthly subscriber. Because we also had talking about being ahead of the game, but then realizing we had to go with what the norm was and people expect more. People want more, you know, customers need more. And I think Audible's always been really, really good at listening to their customer throughout. I um, mean, I think that's why we're always were rated one of the top apps and the top customer experiences, because we do have that customer obsession that we had before Amazon. And that was kind of even more so when Amazon came in and said, you know, this is who we are. We're like a customer obsessed company. So we listened to our customer and we realized as options were broadened, right, there was much more opportunity for people. We had to be smart for our customer, but for our business. So now Audible is in a place where it is a little bit more all you, all you can eat, although there is, still, there is still an element of credit, but there is a lot of kind of additional content that you get as you go along. So it's, again, a transformation that was probably unexpected when I started. There was no discussion about let's do that until until the conversation of our customers changed. I'm curious because uh, I know you were at Audible until not too long ago. Were you there? I can't remember when COVID started or had you already left? So I left in June. So what, three months after, four months after COVID started? Yes. <laughs> and so I was, I was curious, I, I, you know, I, I associate Audible a lot with Drive drive time. And so I wonder, did, I mean, was COVID bad for Audible because people weren't in their cars as much mm -hmm. or was it good because people had more time and they were, they were listening to books on tape at home? On tape, Howard? Books well, on I'm, tape? <laughs> the digital book on tape. <laughs> What's the right term? Audio book. Yes. <laughs> I'm showing my age. Interesting. Is there a jar at Audible? If you say books on tape, you have to put a dollar in or something. That, that's exactly it. 
I obviously have, I, I wasn't there in the thick of this whole COVID, but we definitely as a company, one of our big audience target groups were the commuters, right? Whether it was in the car, whether it was on a train, any kind of movement commuting was uh, where a lot of our customers enjoyed the books. So yes, that was taken away. And I think, you know, the first three months that I was there, in true kind of audible innovation, that was definitely a huge focus for the retention team to how do we rectify that, right? How do we get people into a flow? And there were things that were done, such as opening up all of our kids' content for free. That was kind of one of the first steps. So um, that was kind of one of the things that we said, okay, what, why don't we give something that we know that is right now super needed because parents really didn't know what to do at the beginning of COVID, right? Especially those that have younger children and had to still do their jobs. And that proved to be really an amazing, not only were people grateful, which it wasn't necessarily kind of for us to look good at that point. It was very much, how do we keep our customer engaged with us, knowing that we're missing a big chunk of how they listen to us? And I think, you know, and again, I can't speak to what's been happening now, but I do know in that time frame, it really was very successful and it, and it definitely worked to get loyalty from different angles, right? From, um, from how people kind of listen to us and what they did. And I think knowing how they work and, and the insights we get, I'm sure a lot has been learned in the last 12 months of how to approach the audience and, and where our segments are and how we should rethink maybe some of our segments to even it out, right? Because I think we realize we're over-indexing in one segment. How do we think about, you know, evening out the playing field so we can be smart if anything happens? Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started. Yeah. So, um, gosh, I'd, I'd love to ask you more about Audible, but I'm also mindful of the time and I want to get to both Sesame and a big reveal that we're going to have at the end. So, um, <laughs> I feel so, so much uh, pressure now, more pressure no. than it. <laughs> so you left Audible and went to Sesame. And of course, again, a very different part of the media world it ties in actually with what you were just saying about, about kids' content. And Sesame, of course, is very interesting transformation journey that it's on because, of course, historically, they were very PBS focused in their distribution and then briefly did their own subscription-based direct model. And uh, as that started to be successful, then they started kind of got scooped up within a deal with HBO. And of course, now their content is premium content provided as part of a larger HBO subscription from an on-demand perspective. So how did you find what you were doing at Sesame similar or different or challenges that were different from what you're doing at Audible? So the difference to start with is that Sesame is a nonprofit. And I think not a lot of people know that. So there's a mission behind it. So you're starting from a whole different point, right? So you're starting from the mission is to make children and kids stronger, smarter, and kinder. That's, that's kind of the tagline. So anything we do has that at its core. When we look at kind of media partnerships and broadcast partnerships and how to get our content out there, we keep that in mind. So we try to be and go as broad as possible. So again, revenue is important for the mission, right? Because everything comes back into the company, but it's not like an Audible or WWE where revenue, it's all, right? You have, you know, you have stockholders, you have people that are going to ask. There's a whole different reason of getting these deals done. It's a little different at Sesame. At Sesame, it's like, how do we get into in front of as many kids, caretakers, parents as possible, right? Because it's education-led its content is all about about the kids. So I think that's automatically already different. So for me, coming from commercial properties, 
I had to take a little step back, right? Because I always think very commercially and it's great because it helps bring the brand further for Sesame, but I also have to keep that in mind. So that was a little bit of a step change for me where I wanted to do more, but sometimes I couldn't because of the stages that we were in, because we were a nonprofit and the commercial angle was maybe a little too much and we would have been slapped for that, for example. So there's reasons for that. But so I think from that point of view, it was different for me, but it was most definitely an eye opener. And it's wonderful to be part of something that is very mission focused. And also, you know, when you talk about our brand, Sesame, it's like people smile. People kind of have great nostalgia stories to tell. And it's also a brand which I absolutely love talking about transformation. Obviously, always been at the forefront of the difficult conversations about kids. You know, it was the first kind of diverse show in the 70s with inner city, they called it at that point, right? The characters were Latino and black and white. And it was all of, you know, the diversity was there. It was very much part of the conversation. And we've always had the difficult conversation, whether it was about divorce, about race, all of those things have always been at the forefront, which I think is transformation in itself, because we tend to speak down on our kids and we do not engage them into the difficult conversations. And Sesame does that. Sesame does it in a really wonderful, smart way. And I mean, you know, 50 years in are still doing it and are still the ones that are setting the pace for that. But at the same time, they're also being innovative in their programming and in their shows, right? And I'm not sure if a lot of people know, but they have separate deals with Apple. Um, Helpsters, there is a, um, Helpsters is one of the shows that was a co-production that we did with Apple. And there's a bunch of new productions that we work on that are made from the makers of Sesame Workshop but are not necessarily the Sesame Street brand. So they're so smart about what they're doing, but there's always that element of education and social emotional learnings and all of those things that make Sesame Sesame. Um, So I think they don't stand still. I love that about them too. And to your point, they're broadening their broadcast a bit. You know, they understand PBS is still a huge part. And so are a lot of the broadcasters that I work with internationally that are very similar to PBS, right? That are kind of the voice of the nation and that try to do the right thing. It's different now. Now, a lot of the streaming services are coming up. We've done deals in Netflix in Australia. We're, um, we're doing a deal with, um, with Showmax in South Africa. So more and more streaming opportunities are coming up. And interesting, as you have these conversations with those streaming um, streamers, as they say, right? They are so excited to have us. And you would think, I mean, it's really fascinating because there's so much kids content out there, but they're like, you're an angle that we, we don't have. You're the angle of the education. You're the angle of the voice of talking with kids and being there for kids. So, um, so it's been an absolute interesting journey and a journey that was going to be six months has turned into a year and it's going to go on for a little longer. So I keep, I keep on extending my contract with them because I'm quite enjoying it. Well, it's quite a special brand. And I also think they've done an amazing job of being an important part of what's happening with COVID. And for example, the, what they're doing with the CNN town halls. I think it's it's interesting what you said about the nostalgia component, because on the one hand, I see them using their characters as a way to speak to children at a time when children may be confused and distressed, as especially in the early days of COVID. And I know they did a few of those mm-hmm. CNN town halls. Um but honestly, adults were also freaked out and stressed out about COVID. And I actually think that Sesame's characters have that connection to a time, a childhood time, et cetera, that is soothing. And, and I don't know if it's educational, but psychologically valuable even to adults as they see those characters talking about these, these issues. 
100%. I think you're so right. I think the, the COVID content, and again, Sesame is incredibly good at picking up what's happening and acting very quickly with content, right? It's amazing. I mean, that's one of the things. And I've worked with obviously all these media properties. And I think WWE was very good at creating content. And I think that that's what made them so strong as a brand because they had insatiable fans and they kept on figuring out ways to create more and more content. The wrestlers were kind of constantly taping things and making things, and it was all done in quality content. Sesame does the same thing. Sesame sees what's happening around. And I think COVID was definitely this like, we need to be there for kids. We need to be there for parents. How do you have those conversations with you know, kids, right? About the insecurity, about the uncertainty, about not knowing what's next when you as parents don't know. You don't know what's going to happen next. So we had an amazing amount of content in the uh, caring for each other kind of umbrella that still lives today. If you ever have a chance to look at um, Sesame and communities where you really see the amount of content we create to be a resource for our audience, but also for our caregivers and caretakers. And it's interesting because right now, obviously, with what's happening in India, we're shifting our attention to them too. We, you know, and I've been very involved in the last two months to think through the India plan, both from how do we think about the business development? How can we think about the marketing portion so we can really grow our brand exponentially? And with everything that's going on, I'm like literally taking a step back and talking to the India team is like, let's go back to what we need to be there for right now. It's a resource for trauma, you know, right? Kids, are, this is traumatic. This is for, you know, in India, it's a traumatic experience. You can't even imagine it. I mean, we thought in New York we were hit bad and we were, and we all still know what that trauma felt like being in our houses and not knowing. That's multiplied by X amount in India right now. So we're really thinking about, okay, how could we use that content and localize some of that content to be a, a source of relief, a source of social emotional uh, strength for the, for the market and really thinking through who can we work with and who can help us be a platform for that content. So that's what we're doing right now. But this is, you know, that's Sesame for you. Sesame moves fast. They see an issue, a problem, and they figure out how to find a solution for it. It's, it's pretty, it's a pretty wonderful place to be. Yeah, It's a what, great what street a to be on. Beautiful, the work that you're doing there. Yeah. Um, well, as I know that we're running uh, nearly at the end of our time, it's time for our big reveal. So in addition to all your leadership at Sesame and all the great things you're doing there, I know that you have also been working on your own startup. So allow That's me right. to encourage you to tell our, tell our audience about what are you bringing to market and uh, how can we find more, more about it? How can we get it? All that. I know. Super exciting. I know. Go back to the commercial side of life. Um, so my brother um, started this about eight years, really wanted to solve the last mile of your wine's journey. If you really think about wine, a lot of people spend a lot of money and invest a lot of money on refrigerators and cellars. I mean, tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars are being spent. As soon as you take the bottle out of your cellar or out of your fridge, it goes to room temperature and you lost all of the kind of taste. It becomes acidic. Truly, if you ask any sommelier around the world, the taste has everything to do with the temperature of your wine. To get the right taste, you need to know what temperature your wine has to be served at. And it opens up the tannins and everything else. So my brother's been tingling with it for eight years, as I said, and has been working with engineers to kind of figure out, can we solve this problem? Can we figure out a way to, with the Internet of Things, solve this problem? And we did. So um, we solved it, and it's called Kelvik, Q-E-L-V-I-Q. 
And it's a beautiful device that is, there's no water involved and it basically measures the temperature of your bottle from the inside. Um, so, which is also something that hasn't been done before. We have an app, a company app called Kelvic that has 350,000 wines. You take a photo of your wine's label and then it tells you the exact temperature that it should be on. You can also store it, by the way. It's an inventory as well. We want to make it easy for our customers. And then you send that temperature via Bluetooth to your Kelvic and your Kelvic will get your wine to the ideal temperature, keeps it to the ideal temperature throughout your enjoyment of the wine. And there you go. Go to kelvic.com to find out more. We're going to market in October. You can pre-buy if you want to, but that's up to you. But there's much more information there. Again, still a lot of work to be done. Uh, we're doing our final testing right now, but it's all extremely exciting. So more to come. Wow. So it's the, the new ice bucket. Ooh, that's the word that we do not use. We don't use coolers because we're bringing it to the right temperature. Because right, your, exactly. your wine could be too cold. So we have to get it to a different, depending on what you do with your wine. Some people preserve it differently than others. So, so we make sure that it's exactly the way it should be. Exact right temperature. That's amazing. And if folks want to pre-order it, where should they go or where can they learn more about it? Because I know it's really cool technology. You're only just scratching the surface of it here. Yeah, you can go to Kelvic, so Q-E-L-V-I-Q.com. We um, are in the process of changing our website and going to a different platform. But for now, you can absolutely find all the information you need there. And um, you can always send me a note, which is Helena, H-E-L-E-N-A at Kelvic.com. Great. And could you spell it one more time? And we'll yeah, also sure. put it in the show notes. Okay. So Helena, H-E-L-E-N-A at Q-E-L-V-I-Q. Com. And a fantastic Scrabble word, I would think. I know, right? If only a word I of proper noun. You could get two Qs and a V. I mean, imagine if you hit the triple word score, you're done for the whole game. So do. But our logo looks beautiful. I mean, everything. It's a very designy kind of, you know, so it's not only incredibly practical, it's beautifully done and so super proud of it. So yeah, excited well, I'm, about I'm it. on the pre-order list. I'm looking forward to getting one. I think this is an amazing, really cool thing. And I'm sure uh, a lot of people are going to enjoy it. And an exciting move outside of the media industry into consumer products. So uh, leveraging yeah. all your marketing knowledge from that into a whole, new, uh, a whole new domain. So congratulations on that move. That's really exciting. And thank you so much for sharing so much, so many yeah. insights and interesting stories of your amazing, amazing career in media. Thank you, Howard. And by the way, your book. Oh, let's see. Let's see. I have it right here because I'm reading it. It's Wonderful. been, it's, I'm going to use this as, as I kind of roll out Kelvic. So thank you for oh, that, awesome. Howard. Well, thank I you so much. It. And I'm working on the audiobook. So before too long, hopefully we'll have that, you know, up on Audible. So Perfect. Sounds good. But I, I can't uh, see any connection to WWE, though. I don't think I'm going to be that. No, I know. It's a tough one. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much again. And I want to thank all of you for watching and listening to another episode of Winning Digital Customers. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing everybody next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.